This coverage of Legal Week brought to you by Legal Talk Network, with many great podcasts to make your next commute or workout informative and educational. To improve your practice and stay in the know, visit us at LegalTalkNetwork.com. And now, on to the show. Hello, and welcome to On the Road with Legal Talk Network. I'm Dan Lina, and it's a pleasure to be here with you. Today, we are recording from Legal Week 2020 in New York City. Joining me now, I have Gina Passarella and Patrick Fuller. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you. Well, so before we jump in, why don't you just tell our listeners a little bit about you, where you work, and what you do. Gina? Sure. So I am editor-in-chief of The American Lawyer and our global legal brands at ALM and focusing in a lot on the business of law, how clients and providers are working together to solve clients' legal problems. Great. Patrick? I work with Gina at American Lawyer. I work on the ALM intelligence side. I'm the vice president of ALM uh, Legal Intelligence. And we get to play in the data. So a lot of a lot of the data that we collect, both from the AMLA surveys and the NLJ surveys, plus other um, methods of collecting data that we go out and do, uh, we're able to collect it, play in it, um, develop trends, metrics. We work very closely with Gina and her team and the other journalists in bringing some of that to the broader masses as well. Great. Thank you, Patrick. And, and so we were just on a panel actually a few hours ago today. Uh, 40 years of data, what the data on the legal industry, excuse me, what the data on the industry says about the legal industry's future. Gina, why don't we just start there? I mean, well, what do you think are the biggest takeaways? What are, what are the things that we can kind of say about what the future holds based on the data that you've been able to gather at ALM? Sure. I mean, it's, you know, the, the reason we did 40 years of data is because the American lawyer is 40 years old. So it's a bit selfish in that respect. But really, that was when data really in earnest started to be gathered on the on the profession. And certainly many others have come in and helped amplify that that analysis of, of where the profession is going. And we see, I mean, certainly, you know, there's there's a stratification in the market that we hear about. There's evolution of the law firm business model. They've definitely become more of a business uh, and, an, and an industry than a profession. Those are all the things that, that we all know. But I think there, while we're still seeing great success for a lot of firms and, and really good returns, and Patrick can, can dive into the data a lot more than I can, there are clearly pressure points that, that are building, and the data shows that. And so how are firms trying to adapt and make sure that they're not losing too much market share to these other providers that are coming into the market and, and working around the edges to start, perhaps, but how, how far are they going to let them come in? Well, so let me zero in on a specific point you just made. And, and a skeptic might say, well, we've been hearing this, that pressure's been mounting for a while, and actually profits seem to be creeping up. So what specifically would we maybe point to to, to say that, that tells this story that the pressure is, is mounting? I think there's there's probably a couple of different indicators that you can look at. I think one of them is the fact that if you look at the pre-downturn time, you know, the the average revenue growth for an Amlaw 200 firm was anywhere between 8 and 12% a year annually. You hit the downturn and it dropped down, obviously, and you went into that dip. And now it's stabled out at 4 to 5% a year. And so I think what you end up seeing is this now, prior to the downturn, it was about 2.5x the GDP. Right. So if you think about that, there was a wide gap between where the Amlaw 200 was outperforming the GDP. Now it's mirroring it much more. And so you're starting to see, I don't know if it's much more, if it's pressure points per se, or 
that it's going down, like it's decreasing in any way, but I think it's just coming back into, it's, it's a regression analysis, right? It's, it's regressing back to the mean and we're seeing where it should actually be. So I, I think it's, it's, it's interesting. Uh, the one thing that we pointed out this morning in one of the sessions too is the fact that as we look at the S&P 500 real sales growth, the ebbs and the flows of their numbers and the volatility that the Amlaw 200 almost follows to a large degree a year behind it uh, as well. So you're starting to see when, when there are dips or, or growth spurts in the S&P real, real revenue growth, you're seeing that mirror effect about a year later in the Amlaw 200. And so when they hit pressure points, that cascades back down to the law firms. Well, one of the other things I think looking at the data is you had a story to tell about how sometimes we just talk about the AMLA 200 or even the AMLA 100 and the AMLA 200, and you had some data to suggest that um, you know we're seeing some stratification there. H how do you kind of cut that? How would you describe that where, where you kind of see these lines between the, the firms that seem to be doing better in, the, in this, this marketplace yeah. and the other ones that are str they're struggling a bit. You know, it's interesting because there's always two sides of the story. So there's the, there's the data story and the numbers, you know, numbers know no ideology, right? They, they, they just are. And so there's the data story, then there's the context aspect of it, right? And so one of the things we like to marry together is the fact that we, we can get this data, we can tell a story through it, but then you actually get the behind the scenes or you get the story that's being told through the editorial side that's actually giving life to what's going on. In some cases, it's the data is not reflective of what's actually going on. There could be other, you know, there could be expansion. There could be uh, different things that are going on in the firm where the numbers are taking a little bit of a dip. In other situations, it's it's a clear reflection as as to what's going on. I think one of the things that jumped out today that we pointed out in the session that we were all in together is that, you know, over the last 20 years, the Amlaw 50, the top 50 firms, they've gone from a 52% share of the entire. Amlaw 200 collective revenue to a 62% share, which means that you have a you have 150 of the firms collectively in a group that are getting a decreasing share of a rapidly increasing market, and that's that's the challenge I think that that's created for law firm leaders. And we you speak to a lot of them who are looking at this market that's supposed to be doing so very well, and that they're struggling just to maintain the status quo every year. That's so true. I mean, it, it, if you can look at the numbers and you see, yes, they are going up for some firms, but how hard, how much harder is it now to get those numbers than it was 5, 10, 15 years ago? I mean, it is increasingly difficult to maintain market share, let alone grow it. And are they growing profits per equity partner simply by changing their leverage model? You know, how how real is that, that rise in what partners are bringing home? So those, those aspects that you need to look at it too. And so how, you know, for those firms who can increase rates too much more and don't really have much more on the bone to cut in terms of their their business model, they need to look for alternative ways to provide services and make them as profitable as they once were. Right. Well, and you guys had some data too about the declining number of equity partners and law firms. Yeah. And, you know, how much, I don't know if you have data as far as if you can tell how much of that is due to making fewer partners versus de-equitizing partners. Do you have any insights on that? Or You might have more than I do. On that. Without a doubt, firms are making fewer partners than they ever yeah. have. I mean, that's that's definitely happening. The class sizes are smaller. Some firms have, have maybe seen a little bit of a growth over the last couple of years. But for the most part, the class sizes are smaller. But there's 100% de-equitization is happening. I mean, that's... And frankly, a lot of firms, you know, even when demand is strong, had room to de-equitize because mm -hmm. they, they, they were over capacity in the wrong places. And Patrick, you tell me if you think, think that's no, right I or not. But right. I think, you know, it, 
they're, the way that they were staffing matters and, and unproductive partners and dealing with that, that's something that just any smart business would do. So, you know, we're seeing a combination of a lot of factors, firms getting a little bit more, more mature in how they manage their business. Um, sometimes it's demand softening. Other times it's just making it harder and harder to, to achieve that brass ring of partnership. Well, there's a lot. There's a lot of boomers as well too, and so it's a good opportunity to sort of recalibrate your your leverage model through succession at that time. So you, you know, there's a built-in natural occurrence where you're going to have a number of partners that either they're aging out, depending on the the bylaws of the firm, or they are they're just deciding to retire. Which, when we all got into this business 20 years ago, you didn't hear of lawyers retiring, right? They just, they kept going to the office, even though they might not be billing things. And now you're seeing lawyers retire. And I think that's part of it is, is the de-equitization that Gina talked about is absolutely real. The other part though, too, is that they're not backfilling those people. They're, they're letting that leverage model stay where it is. And the numbers are really interesting because in 2001, 2000, excuse me, 83% of all AMLA 200 partners were equity partners. This year, that number was 56%. Wow, big change. So there is a steady decline in the number of equity partners. So the question I, I think is really fascinating, we didn't get into today is, with that 83 to 56, at what point does the Rubicon get crossed and non-equity partners outnumber, outshare equity partners in the MLA 200? And don't haven't we heard for years that that non-equity tier is where there's you know, not as much of efficiency happening. They're not bringing in the, the the financial outlook that firms would want. But they're also some of the most profitable, right? So, and this this is what's really interesting is you're getting seasoned lawyers that you can command not necessarily premium rates for, but but high rates. But then they're also shifting to the cost structure of the firm because they are not, you know, they don't have an equity stake into it. If so, the demand's there that they can build the hours right. to to make that work. Yeah. But I do think it's interesting, though, that they are making equity partnership more difficult to get. I, I think what's going to be interesting to watch is the downstream impact of that with students coming out, uh, law students coming into the profession now. Because you and I, have, we've talked about this and we've heard this more, that there, there are more associates coming in now that, that are not looking at partner track the way associates did 20 years ago, 25 years ago. When we were all coming out of college, that was that was what you focused on. Now there's a lot more of them that are not necessarily focused on on partner track at all. Yeah. Well, I mean, one of the things we talked about on our panel are the different ways law firms could create the the culture and ha- and the platform that would be much stickier, not just stickier with the clients, but for the lawyers as well. And and so having project managers and data scientists and technology available, but also creating an environment that that more people would would want to stay with a particular firm. They would choose a firm for the for um, you know addressing some of these these challenges that we know have been problematic and have resulted in high turnover. Yeah, I thought that was interesting today when we got into that subject because we talk a lot about switching costs for um, outside counsel. So if when when attorney A leaves firm, you know, leaves firm A for firm B, you know, is that work following that attorney, right? And so one of the things that law firms have gotten a lot better at over the years is institutionalizing their clients. They're learning a little bit from the big four in that respect. They're making the switching costs for clients much more difficult than they ever have before. I think what was brought up in our panel today, I thought was really, really interesting. And I hadn't quite thought of it the way that Jim brought it up, which is what are law firms doing to create, to make switching costs for lawyers more difficult? In an age and an era where 5% of the, on average, the last couple of years, 5% of the MLA 200 partners are changing every year as lateral moves. 
that's a lot of turnover. That's a lot of cost associated in through there. The headhunters, by the way, love it, but uh, that's a lot of commission. But you know, what are firms doing to increase that level of stickiness and maintain people that they want to maintain? I thought that was a great question. No, that was so interesting. And I mean, just in terms, we have a panel tomorrow on the non-traditional career path. I mean, law students, you're absolutely, Dan, you know, know it better than any of us, but are increasingly interested in other ways they can put their law degree to, to use. And there are so many more options and within a firm or, or external. And so that's a, a talent management issue that law firms are going to have to wrap their heads around. Yeah, yeah. Well, just at basics, right, the management and leadership inside of these firms, the lack of project management contributes, in my opinion, to a lot of these a lot of these problems. One of the other interesting data points I thought in, in the, the session this morning was there's a lot of uh, data about kind of the firms that are doing are, are, are performing better and then some of them that are underperforming. And then at the end was thrown out this fact about that the firms that are performing better have done well. I should, the setup for this is that we've got this problem of the lack of diversity, the gender gap in law, and we, people are giving a lot of lip service to it, but very little is changing. Uh, yet, your data, you found that some of these firms that ha are outperforming the market have done much better on that, that metric. So can you, can you tell us more about that? Yeah, well, it, was, it was really interesting. We, uh, we went back and looked five years at the firms that had, in the, in the 2019 AMLA 200, there was 179 firms that were listed this year that had been in the AMLA 200 each of the last five years. And so what we did is, is we sliced it down and said, okay, which firms have, have increased their ranking from 2015 to now, which firms have decreased? And so there's 59% had actually increased their rankings. So what we did then is said, okay, what are, what are the drivers? What are the metrics in through there? What are the firms that are doing the best actually doing? And not surprising, right? It was tied to increased headcount in driving revenue. What was interesting is that the, the revenue per lawyer, which is the thing that most of us look at as sort of the, the, the key stat, the health of the, of the firm, was strong. So they're able to maintain rates, right? They were still growing their individual um, revenue. So it wasn't just the fact that we have a bunch of lawyers and we got more revenue. It was the fact that they're actually also executing at that. What was really interesting is then we looked at the firms that weren't doing as well, and they were losing headcount. Both both groups, by the way, switched their leverage model up. So, you know, profits for equity partner, no matter what they were doing, were still strong on both sides. The thing that really... Magic trick. I, I know. Well, it, but, and Jim pointed out how important it was today, too, which was an interesting way of thinking about that. But the thing that really struck with us is when we looked at it then, the firms then that had grown the most in their female partnership were the ones that had performed the best. And so it went from a, a 30, I think it was a 29 to 11, 29% to 11%. Yes, yeah, so, I got a picture of the slider. Yeah. yeah, so it was the firms that, that, and they grew their revenue 34% on average. This is a per firm average, by the way, over five years. The firms that promoted women, 29% um, growth in female partners were the ones that promoted the highest uh, revenue gains and profitability gains. The ones that fell back in the AMLA rankings we're only, promo only promoted on average 11%, which is one out of every 10 partners. I mean, I'm almost fed up, to be honest with you, about trying to make the business case, as you are, because you and I talk about it yeah. a lot, for diversity and inclusion and, and getting the best people doing the best work inside the organization and the firm. You know, and clearly, the clients are speaking, and there's a mandate out there to, to bring all, you know, all sorts of diversity into, um, into the, the client team and the firms that are doing that are the firms that are seeing the financial benefit from it. Gina, what do you think, like with the law firm leaders you talk about, I mean, how can, how can we get them to, be, to, to use data like this and to, uh, 
to, I mean, get, you're getting more profitable, right? But then also we're solving this problem that we say we care a lot about. There, I mean, there's no doubt that firm leaders genuinely care about this issue and they're actively looking at it. And, you know, they, they kind of fall back, I think, sometimes on the same old reasons of why it's difficult, why it doesn't work. And I'm of the mindset that when clients really start flexing their muscles, and I think they're starting to, without a doubt, and when we have organizations like Diversity Lab who are doing really meaningful things, bringing the clients and the law firms together, that's going to make a difference. But for me, and perhaps this is the cynical journalist in me, I think that when it's not when clients start giving work to more diverse firms or more diverse teams, it's when they fire the ones that they've always used who aren't bringing diversity to the table that things will start to change. And, and, and it matters where it matters, right? Because it's not one of those things where it's like, well, we have all this, you know, our labor and employment work or our, our commercial, you know, contract work. It's when, when there's something that's bet the bonus and they're firing a firm because they're not bringing the, the team to bear that they want, then that's when it's going to take hold. Well, so let's shift gears just a little bit. What providers do you think are best positioned to thrive in this evolving marketplace? Gina, you Oh, fine. Throw it to me first. All right. Um, you know, I, I think what we learned from the last panel that I was just on, on the, the, the big four ALSPs, law firms restructured, I mean, it, and it's a clear theme throughout all of this. You put the, put the clients in the mix. It's a collaboration. I mean, I don't know that there's one provider that can solve it all. I know that there are some entities who are trying to be that and, and are getting darn close. And perhaps the big four is that. I, I don't know. But I think we even heard from the big four today that collaboration among your traditional providers, your law companies, the big four legal tech companies, the clients themselves, uh, there's, there's just going to be more and more of that. I'm convinced of it. And I, I think being open-minded to that and being creative and perhaps getting out ahead of that curve as best you can and being a, a bit of a first mover on that. I think the clients are going to realize uh, the the advantage that that brings, and they're going to notice, and I, I think it's worth their while. Yeah, I, I would agree with that. I think that the, the thing that we we look at a lot is the firms that can scale, and they can find a way to you know sort of leverage technology in a way that they haven't done before. So, I mean, law firms clearly miss the industrial revolution. Right. And yeah, so, right. so there's, so firms that, that have the, that are nimble and agile enough to be able to leverage technology. Um, and the partnership and the collaboration aspect, I think is absolutely critical as well, too. I think, you know, it was brought up today. I heard a couple of people talking about the fact that they're, they're not working on matters anymore where it's, it's where the, our only firm is the one that's providing it. They're, they're working with three or four different firms on matters. And I think that general contractor model where the, de, you know, the deaggregate, um, Disaggregation. Disaggregation. Uh, Thank you very much. It's, it's been, been a, a long, long day. day. <laughs> exactly. And yeah, you both have been here for like fourteen uh, hours or something. So yeah, okay, yeah. of legal service. <laughs> I think that's going to continue. And I think, but I think what ultimately though that's going to be really interesting because then it gives you start you're able to pick the best out of the best, right? So if you're if you're building your house and you say, okay, I want the I'm going to have a general contractor here, but I want the absolute best carpenter, I want the best flooring person, I want the best roofer. This is kind of what you're able to do with that. I think what you're going to see, and I'm a big believer in pendulums, right? So we're going to we're seeing all this right now, this kind of disaggregation in some respects. We're also seeing a lot of collaboration. We may get to a point where it, we get to, okay, why am I collaborating? Let's just bring it all in house, and maybe there's changes to the regulations that make that easier to do. And so we we see things kind of go back and forth. But I think th providers are 
thinking about these, the way they provide services differently, regardless of under which entity it's under. So last question, and I'm going to editorialize here a little bit, but uh, like, so this came up during the session today, talking about how much work done by law firms could actually done be done by alternative service providers. And the number of 50% was thrown out there. I mean, especially when I think about this in, in the access to justice space, I think lawyers should be thinking about, we need to push everything we can down the people who are not lawyers to automate everything we can because people need services. In the in the law firm world, that means the the story there. I think is we need to be thinking about what are the additional new things that lawyers going to do to add value. I mean, are we maybe not thinking far enough down the road to thinking what that law firm looks like? Are we just really focused on these? I mean, we got to do these foundational things, but are we not envisioning what that future is really going to look like? I don't know if it's a being tied to precedent or feeling like there are restrictions on being more creative, but. I do think that, you know, the move to more of a consultant model, and I mean, I hear from firms all the time, their biggest competitors now are consultants, and I'm not just talking about the big four, I mean, it could be a healthcare consultant in that space or, or what have you. So anything that you can do to act more like that and, and provide some ancillary support for your clients too, and the firms question whether they should be in the space of providing IT support or, or you know, kind of that, that broader tech support to to clients to help run their, their legal department. And so they're definitely thinking about about those things. but. I, yeah, I, I don't know if they're thinking creatively enough. <laughs> uh, I'll say this quickly. I, I think I, I agree. And the consultant model is really, really interesting for, for a number of reasons, obviously. But one of them was brought up today, which where we were talking a lot about preventative law. And that ability to have that business conversation, get into the preventative law aspect of it, and that's something that the the big four in particular, but even some of the other you mentioned, healthcare or you know Mercer or a company like that, right? They're doing a lot of that as well too. I think the challenge that law firms have right now is that they've they've had a single entity in many cases, especially larger corporations going through the GC, where the big four and some of the others are spread out throughout the organization, have much better brand recognition, and I think that's one of the things that that could ultimately when Jim Jones said 50%. I tend to agree with that in terms of volume. And I think it could get a little bit higher because of the brand recognition that a lot of these, the big four has throughout the entire organization, especially at the executive level. Well, the, and the problem, Dan, with, with firms pushing as much work down as they can and why your, your follow-up question is so important as to, well, what else are you going to fill that with is a lot of firms can't afford to push much work down. Every firm that I meet with, every single firm yeah. tells me they want to do the highest end work for the right, highest end right, clients. Right. Well, there is just only so much of that to go mm -hmm. around. And, and we know that and everybody knows that. And, and, a lot, and that's why I think some of your highest end firms are probably innovating around practice and the substantive area of legal expertise that they're delivering, where the rest, the 80, 90 percent of the rest of them are innovating around process and, and how they can deliver services and which services they're going to be. Yeah, lots of, lots of big challenges, but I think lots of big opportunities as well. Absolutely. Okay. Well, it looks like we've reached the end of our On the Road episode, and I want to thank Gina and Patrick for joining us. Can you let our guests know how they might be able to reach out to you, whether it's on social media or your email? Well, for the next 24 hours, it's in the Legal Business Strategies Conference. <laughs> <laughs> Week. No, but I, I welcome um, emails or email gpassarella at alm.com, Twitter, gpassarella, T-A-L, for the American Lawyer. Um, so th find me anywhere you can. I'm happy to have these conversations. I, I love talking about this stuff. Yeah, no, likewise. Uh, first initial, last name, so pfuller at alm.com. And social media, it's at diglegal, D-I-G, legal.com from... 
a lifetime ago. Uh, another thing, but you don't it, it's good. I do think legal. Yeah, it, it kind of worked out the way it, it all kind of came together. But uh, yeah, I, we we love this because that means people are listening and paying attention. So it's it's great. Yeah. Well, well, thank you, Gina. Thank you, Patrick. It was really thank great you, to Dan. be on a panel with you today. Yeah, and much your pleasure. Thank you, and thanks for joining us uh, for this conversation. So. Thank you also to our listeners for tuning in. If you like what you heard, please rate us and review us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, or your favorite podcasting app. I'm Dan Lena. Until next time, thank you for listening. If you'd like more information about what you've heard today, please visit LegalTalkNetwork.com. Subscribe via iTunes and RSS. Find us on Twitter and Facebook. Or download our free Legal Talk Network app in Google Play and iTunes. The views expressed by the participants of this program are their own and do not represent the views of, nor are they endorsed by, Legal Talk Network, its officers, directors, employees, agents, representatives, shareholders, and subsidiaries. None of the content should be considered legal advice. As always, consult a lawyer.